Welcome to the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast, where we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy, plus you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so use your time effectively by listening, learning, and claiming credit. It's a new way to learn. Just log on to CEimpact.com for more information on podcasts. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome. I'm I hoping uh, as the summer is rolling around, you are doing well wherever you are and things are going okay. Thank you so much for taking time to listen. Um, as always, we ask that if you're a new listener, we welcome you and please head over to wherever you get your podcasts and, and hit that like button, hit the subscribe button because that helps us keep the lights on. Um, as always, we want to thank our uh, producers, uh, uh, CEI, uh, CE Impact, and and uh, they uh, do a great job, uh, not only for this uh, um, podcast, but a wide variety of other CE, including, I was just told, uh, uh, CME. So for the physicians listening to this podcast, yes, you can officially get CME uh, for signing up for uh, uh, this podcast. Uh, you just go to the uh, Pharmacy uh, Network website and log in, uh, check check the Academy. I'll go into the Academy uh, uh, box there, and you can log in and uh, uh, figure out the details of, of signing up for and all that kind of stuff, and you will also get CME for this. So uh, we don't have pharmacist CE and physician CME, and I think that's terrific, and hopefully we're going to really do more and more of that as time goes on. So today we are going to be talking about a paper that uh, came out on June 17th, and it, and, and I, I apologize for, for the community practitioners out there. Uh, this is going to be a little more ICU-based, and, and I do uh, I do quite a bit of time in our ICU at my, at my hospital, and this has is, is made a lot of waves. Uh, it, just in the last couple of days, it's been published, so I thought it was worth discussing, and that's the TTM2 study, a uh, study looking at hypothermia versus normal thermia in patients after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with this, this is something that I think most critical care practitioners would tell you has been a bit controversial in the last 10 or 15 years, but back in 2002, two studies were published, uh, the HACA study and a study by a, 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 a investigator led by an investigator named Bernard, published fairly similarly to each other that basically showed that, uh, that in patients who had suffered a cardiac arrest, primarily by ventricular fibrillation, that if we were to uh, um, uh, drop their core temperature significantly, in this in this case, it was uh, 32 to 33 degrees centigrade, uh, that it was associated with a, with a favorable neurologic outcome. So not only were, were there more people alive, but the people who were alive actually uh, had a better neurologic outcome compared to controls. And when that paper came out, it just totally upended everything we did in, in the ICU as far as dealing with cardiac arrest, and uh, most hospitals I, I, I hospital I practice in, most hospitals I knew rushed to get a, a hypothermia protocol in place, which was a significant undertaking because these patients, you know, it's there's a lot of issues when you're dropping somebody's core temperature to to uh, uh, that low a temperature. In my world as a pharmacist, the the couple things that we always dealt with is something you're going to do when you drop your core temperature that low is shiver uncontrollably uh, to the point where you can actually get rhabdo. Uh, 
and and so because of that we had to do something to prevent shivering and every hospital had their their protocols of how to do that uh you know and that and that would be up up to and including paralyzing patients so they couldn't shiver and that of course had its all its uh problems associated with as well um, um blood clotting doesn't tend to work all that well in patients with with, with low body temperatures so there is issues with that so it just it was a it was not to, to belabor things but it was just an, a gigantic undertaking in most ICUs to develop this this hypothermia protocol um, uh, again not least of which is how are you going to drop somebody's core temperature to 32 degrees uh, most everybody used external cooling blankets blankets with 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 cooling circuits in them but some places used internal cooling with ice cold uh, uh, um, saline to be infused and I mean of course there's issues associated with that so it was just it was it was a huge undertaking but this was the the, the these two studies were really the first studies that had shown a benefit so everyone thought we, we've really got to do this now there was a lot of, uh, of controversy with those studies at the time because they were pretty small uh, to combine the studies only had about 200 patients in them so so again there was there was there was some you know gee, we're making all these changes based on a fairly a couple of fairly small studies so to follow up on that in 2013 the t, the t original ttm study was published and this was a much bigger study with about 900 patients in it and they actually looked at targeted temperature uh, 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 lowering uh, to 33 degrees versus just lowering to 36 degrees because uh, there had been some some evidence to suggest that maybe it was less that that hypothermia was a good thing and more that preventing uh, uh, temperatures ex temperature excursions above 36 were a bad thing because we've known for a long time that patients who have cardiac arrest that if they have fevers after the cardiac arrest that's associated with worse outcomes and in the TTM study they did not find a difference between uh, 33 and 36 degrees uh, centigrade targeted temperature in patients with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Then the Hyperion study was published a couple years later uh, that looked at about 500 patients who were in coma following a non-shockable cardiac arrest. So these are patients who either in a systole, so they had, they had no uh, uh, electronic, uh, electrical activity of the heart, or they had pulseless electrical activity, where they had some electrical activity, but it wasn't enough to generate a pulse. And, and in this case, the use of moderate hypothermia did show a favorite neurologic outcome. So as you can see, you know we were kind of all over the place with a couple of studies showing a benefit, and then a couple of studies maybe not. And then the big question saying, is it really trying to make people have a low temperature or is it more just making sure they don't have big temperature excursions above a certain point? And so uh, that's kind of where the TTM2 study was published. And again, this many people are saying now this may be kind of the final nail in the coffin on this. So we'll see. But basically it was a, a study just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, so we'll have a, a, a link to that in the show notes. Um, it is a randomized study. It was a superiority study. And what they did was uh, they randomized patients in the emergency department into uh, 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 a web-based allocation in kind of a one-to-one -one ratio, and and so they wanted to take a look at a number of things. But but the but the primary uh, outcomes they 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 outcome they wanted to look at was neurologic outcome, health-related quality of life, and all of course also of course mortality in these patients. As you might imagine, mortality is quite high across the board in these patients. Um, they also wanted to look at subgroup analysis: was there a difference in age, gender? Uh, time to uh, the time they uh, were able to get return of spontaneous circulation. So the time from where they were found down or found to be in cardiac arrest to, to uh, a return of, of, of spontaneous circulation, uh, what the initial rhythm was, because again, there's, there's some differences between shockable and non-shockable rhythms and whether they got shocked or not. 
the outcomes uh, were assessed in, at, uh, at days 30, at six months, and then actually 24 months, and it's actually an ongoing study. So this is, this is uh, uh, just kind of an interim analysis of this. As you might imagine, this kind of study is difficult to do with blinding. It's a little hard to blind somebody to make them, you know, say, well, we're going to put you in the hypothermia protocol, but we're not going to tell the clinicians. So that would not obviously be possible to do. So they, they did not blind the clinicians who were taking care of the patients. However, they did uh, blind anybody who assessed the prognosis, the outcomes, as well as the statisticians and the data manager. So anyone who was basically involved with assessing the outcomes was in fact, was in fact blinded. And they did a neat trick here, which I've never seen before in another attempt to help with blinding is they wrote duplicate manuscripts for each scenario before randomization was revealed. So basically they had a good manuscript and a bad manuscript, if you, if you know what I'm saying, uh, written for each scenario before randomization. Never heard of that before. Um, that, 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 that I think that's kind of going above and beyond to try and maintain not blinding. It's, it's kind of like when you hear those, uh, you know, the big blockbuster movies where they, they have uh, multiple endings in the script so that nobody gets the right ending. That was, I thought that was kind of interesting anyway. Um, uh, they did uh, do the outcome assessment by face-to-face -face interview or telephone interview. Um, this uh, did occur during COVID, and so uh, uh, that kind of makes sense that they had to do this by, by this. And they did calculate they needed about 1,800 patients to give about a 90% power to detect an absolute risk reduction in 7.5% of mortality. Um, and, and then this was an action increase uh, uh, to 1,900 patients to account for lot loss of follow-up. So that's kind of the background of the study. We'll get into more detail details of what, what the, they did in the study and then what they found in the study right after this message from CE Impact. Do you love Game Changers? We would love if you, our dedicated listeners, would share your feedback on your experience of listening to Game Changers every week. Check out the link in the show notes to share your feedback. So looking at this trial, the TTM2 study, uh, it was done, it was a multinational study, but it was not done in the United States. Uh, it was done in 14 countries in Sweden, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, France, and the Czech Republic. They started the study uh, in kind of 2018 through 2020. And again, it's the, the follow-up is, is ongoing. They included patients in the study who had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from a presumed cardiac or unknown cause. So basically, someone is probably found down who thought it was thought to have a cardiac arrest um, that after the, the they were attended to, they did uh, re get, get a return of spontaneous circulation. And that return of spontaneous circulation, what you'll hear uh, ICU clinicians and ER clinicians called ROSC, uh, occurred for at least 20 minutes without the need for chest compressions. So they didn't have to continually go back and keep doing chest compressions. But after a code situation, the patient did uh, get uh, ROSC back and maintained ROSC for at least 20 minutes. The patient uh, uh, was found unconscious, which would well, something you're going to find most of the time in these cases, uh, but they did have some strict definitions of what that was. Uh, they didn't really have any other limitations as far as management is concerned. I think they wanted to make this pretty pragmatic and as, and, and, and as applicable as possible, but the initiation into the study could occur no later than 180 minutes after the return of spontaneous circulation. So they had to be randomized and put into the study and bit put in either the, the target temperature management or the, or the, the uh, uh, normal th thermion within 180 minutes of ROSC. They excluded patients whose initial rhythm was asystole, and I think that's an important exclusion that we need to think about, uh, and patients who were already hypothermic 
on admission in patients who were suspected to be pregnant, had an intracranial bleed, or had severe COPD who are on long-term O2, which would be another uh, potential exclusion we're going to have to think about. So those are the inclusion and exclusion criteria. They screened about 4,400 patients, and about half of those were not randomized due to exclusion criteria. The over number, overwhelming number reason one was that they were not able to initiate uh, either hypothermia or normothermia within 180 hours after return of spontaneous circulation, which kind of makes sense. But this makes this still the largest study ever to take a look at, at uh, uh, temperature management after a cardiac arrest. Uh, uh, 1,900 patients were randomized. Um, 1,861 uh, were in the final analysis in the, in, as far as intention to treat. 930 in the hypothermia arm and 931 in the normal thermia arm. Um, they, uh, as far as baseline characteristics, they were actually almost identical across the board. Age was similar. The mean age was 64 in both groups. Uh, mean gender was a uh, was 80% male in both groups. Uh, three quarters of these patients had a shockable rhythm, which meant they were probably in ventricular tachycardia or ventricular uh, uh, um, fibrillation. Bystander CPR was started. So most of these patients, again, were outpatient, out of hospital cardiac arrest. So 82 versus 78%. And about a, a quarter of them in both arms were, were shocked on admission. And the mean time to return of circulation, spontaneous circulation was similar between groups 25 minutes each. Uh, uh, and so then in the intervention group, the hypothermia group was a target temperature of 33 degrees uh, centigrade. Uh, they, they did this by using, again, ice cold fluids given intravenously or, or external physical cooling devices. Uh, they did have a standardized uh, uh, feedback control system to maintain target temperature and go up and down. Uh, uh, in this case, they did a bladder temperature probe, which is something I'm not going to lie, I hope I never have to get. Uh, <laughs> uh, they did do rewarming after 28 hours. Hours um, and 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 you don't want to rewarm patients too quickly because that can that can lead to problems. And so they re, they did a, a slow rewarm at no more than 0.3 uh, degrees centigrade per hour up until 40 hours. Um, and and uh, uh, in this intervention group, almost everybody did did achieve 33 degrees centigrade. Most of most uh, achieved cooling with external devices, which is primarily what we do in the United States. The control arm uh, were patients basically uh, who didn't get any sort of of of, of of uh, standardized decreasing in, in, in temperature uh, means. What they did was they wanted to take a look in patients who developed a temperature of greater than 37.8. And um, they did this by continuous monitoring of their temperature. And if that were to occur, they first then used either pharmacologic conservative therapy. So they gave acetaminophen, things along those lines, or they used uh, you know fans, things along those lines to see if they could get their temperature below uh, uh, 37.5. Um, if, if the main temperature maintained above 37.5, then they did use uh, physical cooling devices, but again, only to get a target of less than less than 37.8. So basically tra just trying to maintain patients uh, at normal body temperature to not have a fever essentially. So in the end, the way to kind of take a look at this study is that they looked at, again, aggressive uh, hypothermia versus uh, prevention of fevers. And other than that, kind of maintaining normal, normal uh, body temperature in these patients. Uh, in this uh, group, in the normal thermia group, 46% of patients needed a device to to, to maintain target temperature. So just Tylenol wasn't, wasn't cutting it in the vast majority. Uh, but again, most of this was surface cooling and the vast majority of them did stay in, in the normal thermia range. Uh, other than that, um, uh, the, uh, the management was common in both group, uh, groups and there didn't seem to be a, a, a big difference between them. They did have a, a stepwise protocol for treatment of shivering in either group, which is good. And again, something that, that as a pharmacist in the ICU, I've certainly dealt with over the years. At 96 hours, they had a neurological assessment performed by a blinded clinician. Uh, 
depression. Um, and they, again, wanted to look at mortality. They wanted to look at, at neurologic recovery, things along those lines. A lot of these patients, as you might imagine, had heart attacks. That's why they had a cardiac arrest. And so they did also want to take a look and stratify by patients who had uh, uh, um, a coronary intervention. And those numbers were exactly the same between the normal thermia group and the hypothermia group. So then that gets us to the da-da-da-da outcome, which was no difference. There was no difference in anything. There was no difference in in-cause mortality at six months. It was exactly 50% essentially containing, uh, 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 comparing hypothermia to normal thermia. Um, and so there was no difference in death. Uh, secondary outcomes in the patients who survived, uh, there was no difference in proportion of patients with a, uh, a poor functional outcome. So, so, so basically they used the modified Rankin scale and, and people high, have high Rankin scales have basically poor neurologic outcome. And there was no difference at all between the two groups between normothermia and hypothermia. There was also no difference in health-related quality of life, which they used the standardized scale for. They did find that at adverse effects of, of arrhythmias in particular were statistically higher in the hypothermia group compared to the normothermia group. Um, but other than that, they did not find a big difference in, in other types of, of uh, uh, adverse events. And bleeding was the one I think a lot of people were interested in because, again, we know that, that, that clotting mechanisms don't tend to work very well as, as people are cold. So Bottom line with this study was that they did not find any benefit in, in aggressively lowering uh, out-of-hospital arrest uh, patients with uh, uh, getting their, their temperature down to 33 degrees C. And in fact, it seemed that comparatively speaking to, to just con uh, uh, making sure patients don't have fevers and maintaining normal thermia, there was no real difference between them. So the many, as you might imagine, many experts in the field have kind of commented on this study already. Um, it, it, as I said, it's, it's, it made, uh, no pun intended, a lot of shock waves in uh, um, uh, the, the, a lot of social media. I, I had heard about it, I think, you know, probably minutes after the paper had been, had been posted on the New England Journal website. There were people on Twitter talking about it and stuff like that. Um, on the whole, when I read the study, I felt it was a very, very good study. Um, I, I think they uh, did, I, you know, it was certainly the largest study ever done. I think uh, they, they, they made it as pragmatic as possible, yet maintaining the highest level of science, which is a good thing. They did find mortality that's pretty similar um, uh, in, uh, uh, to what we see in, in studies about half of patients, you know, again, you know, don't make it or have poor neurologic outcomes without out of hospital cardiac arrests. Um, um, it seemed like uh, uh, the, the, the generalizability of the study is, is, is actually pretty decent, except for those two exceptions on the, in, this, in the COPD patients who required oxygen or patients with asystole. Um, I would argue that patients with asystole usually don't have a very good outcome anyway, um, so it would make sense why they, they would probably not put them in. But again, they did exclude those patients. They had really good follow-up. There was clear separation between the groups. They had a standardized protocol for both hypothermia and normal thermia, which again, a lot of other, you know, ever seems like every health system and every hospital has their own little tweaks and own little things they do in their uh, uh, um, uh, hypothermia protocol. So it was nice that they, that they standardize that across everything. Um, and, and, and so that's something to keep in mind. Now, uh, critics of this paper have argued that there still may be a role for, for hypothermia if it's done very, very early and, in fact, done pre-hospital. And there have been a couple of studies that have looked at, is it possible even in the EMT rig or the ambulance 
to uh, to to initiate a, a, a hypothermia in these patients. And some some studies have looked at this. Some small studies have suggested that that that's a possibility. So some some people who are still kind of holding out a hope for hypothermia at wonder if uh, cooling was started pre-hospital, uh, um, uh, um, would, would that work? Um, that may be, in fact, a, 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 a something to look at. But uh, I'm thinking to myself and, and some of the people I know who work as, as emergency medical technicians and, and, and paramedics, I wonder how that would be logistically possible to do in most cases, um, even, even if we were to find a benefit. I think, I think it would uh, um, uh, mean some major changes to, to the equipment on, on ambulances and, 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 and stuff like that. So it, it, it is, it is going to be interesting to see, see, you know, if, if any other people take a look at ultra early cooling, but I, I think that that's probably not a, uh, for the foreseeable future, not, not a, a solution to cardiac arrest that, that we've got basically. Um, it is interesting to note that there was another arm of the study called the, the TAME arm. And this arm is actually looking at early hypercapnia. So that might be something else. We'll have to see when that study is published. So uh, kind of the bottom line for this study, um, I think it's a, a pretty decent study. And, and I think that this uh, really, uh, in most cases, should answer the question, you know, should we aggressively decrease people's uh, temperature in patients who come in with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? And I think the answer in most of those cases is going to be no. And uh, I can tell you that, that that's, uh, from, from, a, from a resource perspective, a good thing. And I think from an adverse effects perspective, a good thing too, because one wonders if we were causing more harm than good uh, in a lot of these patients. And certainly when you're having to paralyze patients or put them on, on high doses of Demerol or high doses of Buspirone to control their shivering. Um, I always, you know, again, kind of anecdotally felt like I'd see these patients bleed way more than, than normally. And that always kind of made me nervous. So I think there, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of issues that, that had to go into uh, dropping people's uh, uh, temperature uh, that we either didn't know the answer to or, or, or were afraid we may be harming patients. From a pharmacist perspective, you know, over the years, I've had several patients or several physicians ask me, well, gee, you know, do you think drugs are, are metabolized the same way in patients whose core temperature is, you know, 32, 33 degrees? And my answer was, I don't know, <laughs> and neither does anybody else. So, I mean, you know, that, you know, the answer is probably yes, but how and how would we ever study that sort of thing? And so there was a lot of questions with, with hypothermia and, and it seems that we will probably in many cases be able to, 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 to not have to do that in these patients. And I think what this really means is to be very aggressive. And this is something that I'm trying to do in my ICU for years now, uh, be very, very aggressive in treating fevers in, in, in cardiac arrest patients because we know it's associated with, with, with poor outcomes. And, and certainly you can try things like Tylenol. Uh, sometimes that doesn't work all that well in these patients, but, but, but try that. And if it doesn't, again, you know, um, you know, surface cooling measures such as fans or even just, you know, cooling blankets, stuff like that, uh, and really being aggressive about it, I think can, can, can be pretty beneficial. So that's, that's a good thing. So, so uh, the TTM2 study, uh, kind of maybe putting the final touches on, on hypothermia in, in, uh, in the ICU. We'll see, we'll see, as you can tell, this has been a contentious subject in the world, in the world of, of emergency medicine and ICU medicine for, for 15 years. And understandably so, because the, the outcomes are dismal with cardiac arrest. People don't do well. And so anything that we can find that's beneficial, we're really going to try and, uh, try and hold on to and, and try and implement as quickly as we can. So, so that's it for this week of, uh, Game Changers. Thanks for listening. Again, if you 
you uh, get a chance, uh, get over to wherever you get your podcast, hit that like button, go ahead and subscribe, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell everybody, hopefully uh, that they will listen to and, and we can continue to, 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 to give you guys uh, these, these, these uh, podcasts. As again, uh, both pharmacists and physicians and other healthcare professionals who can get CME, please head over to CE Impact and uh, you know, for taking the time to listen to my voice, you can actually get some CE for this. And I think that's a good thing. So we will talk to you next week. Remember that time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Check out the CE for this podcast at ceimpact.com or download the Pharmacy Network app by searching CE Impact in your app store and join the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Happy learning.